Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 212 for November 5th, 2021. On today's show, Rowan Chamberlain talks about people-pleasing, among other mental health considerations. If you'd like to support this show, go to patreon.com slash vanarchism. You'll get early access to every episode, a monthly bonus show, plus travel essays and photos and videos from my Vanarchism project, which chronicles my van travels across the U.S. Again, that's patreon.com slash vanarchism. I'm starting a new thing with this episode. I'm going to thank a Patreon supporter by name on each episode this week. My thanks go out to Colleen. So I'm still in uh, central Pennsylvania, which I think is where I was when I recorded the intro to the last episode. I was supposed to travel across the state this week to meet up with a fellow van lifer uh, for, who I've never met before. We're going to meet for the first time. Uh, but unfortunately, my remote job had some issues with figuring out how to pay me. And so I'm down to about $2 <laughs> in my bank account. And uh, you'd be surprised how little gas it's possible to buy. <laughs> With two bucks. So I am, uh, instead, I, I missed that person as they came through Pennsylvania. And uh, instead, I'm just hanging around, uh, which is fine, spending a lot of time um, with my younger son. Just uh, as I'm recording this, I just took uh, his dog for a stroll, which was very nice. I've started walking again, trying to uh, walk at least a couple miles a day. I've gotten really sedentary. And a big part of van life for me was wanting to get out there into the world and do more hikes and explore more places. And I just really have not done that. I bought myself a pair of nice hiking shoes. I used them to go on one hike and <laughs> that was it. So uh, this week I started going for walks again and I'm just a few days in, but uh, enjoying it and we'll we'll see how it goes. I'm not, uh, I'm not putting all that much pressure on myself, just, you know, hoping I can pretty regularly get out there and take a stroll. Let's dive into this week's episode, which uh, I really, really enjoyed recording, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to. Here we go. Rowan Chamberlain, welcome to A Brief Chat. Hi, thank you for having me. My gosh, my pleasure. I'm such a fan of yours. I don't know how I encountered you first, uh, but I followed you on Instagram for quite a while, and just i just love everything about what you use your online presence to do and of course it has some of the personal stuff that everybody's online presence has but a lot of what you use your power for is uh talking about things that are a important and b often under discussed at least in my in my opinion a lot of it focused around um mental health and about how folks kind of live more you know fulfilled and and lives authentic to their true selves. And that stuff is also so important to me. And you did a, uh, you focused for a while uh, some time ago, and I think it's part of a lot of what you do, but you, you, you shined a real spotlight on the idea of people pleasing in a way that I really hadn't heard before. And I guess I'd heard, you know, if I'd heard the phrase and maybe had the, the barest, grasp of the concept but it really it really turned me around and and gave me you know both some insights into myself but just also into that that kind of mode of action in the world and that was what I hoped we could we could get into today and maybe it, the best thing to do is just start by kind of defining our terms um when you talk about people pleasing what are you referring to mm. yeah that's a really great question um when i was growing up i maybe heard the term people pleaser in passing and kind of thought like, oh, that's just someone who's a little overly nice or 
someone who maybe is a bit conflict avoidant. They just don't really like getting into arguments. They just kind of stay backed off or whatever. But um, eventually I learned that it's actually a survival response uh, to childhood trauma or possibly you know, narcissistic abuse in teenagehood or adulthood, uh, relational trauma, basically. So <laughs> that was kind of a big revelation for me, realizing that um, not just a really nice person and like good at making people <laughs> happy and stuff. It's actually, I'm uh, hypervigilant and constantly focusing on what other people around me need. Um, I tend to not focus on what I need. I disconnected from my body for most of my life. So that is the sort of, when I talk about the people pleaser, I talk about it as, as a survival uh, strategy, basically. And even just from your description right there, I, I could understand how it might be difficult for a person to realize that they're doing that because the outward expression of people-pleasing often contains a lot of things that we see as positive in terms of social interaction, making sure other people are comfortable and happy and that they have what they need and so on and so forth. It's not till you get to the, the back half of that, you know, at the expense of oneself, that you kind of see the, the dark underside of what is, I think, often seen as a fairly positive way to be in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's kind of a joke that goes around in <laughs> in trauma-informed circles, uh, which is coming to the realization that my entire personality is just a bunch of survival mechanisms <laughs> from trauma. Um, it's a bit of a kind of a dark a dark humor way to look at it. Um, obviously, I, I I do think uh, I do think these are are really lovely traits, um, and the problem comes when they start to hurt you or when they hurt other people. Um, and I've personally been involved in doing both in my life. I, my, my people pleasing, the unconscious automatic, not even necessarily desire, but automatic need. I just, I've always in my past, I'm doing better now, flipped into this automaton of pleasing others. And I have done things in that state that I'm not proud of that cause deep pain for other people and deep pain for myself. Um, and in addition to that, when we, when we people please, we tend to self-abandon in a lot of ways. What our body is doing is trying to keep us safe by getting other people's approval and making sure there's harmony in the room and making sure people are okay with us. So in a way, that's our body loving us and trying to keep us safe, but at the same time, it is abandoning our actual wants and needs in the moment. It's abandoning our agency, our sense of self-love and self-trust, all of that stuff. Um, I think once you start to become aware of it, it's not just like, well, I'm just going to be an asshole now, you know, or, or you know, these traits that I've always been proud of don't matter or they're not part of me. I think it's, it's, a, it's the practice of realizing when I'm doing it out of love and joy and care and when I'm doing it out of fear to try to keep myself safe. And so how, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to hear, let's just ask a huge question, but how, how does someone look at their own behavior and assess, okay, am I doing this from a place of, uh, from a positive place or from a, a place of trauma and protection, self-protection? I think that is something that 
is most effective when tackled from a number of different angles. Um, speaking from my journey, realizing that it was a thing was, was step one, you know, realizing that it's a thing, realizing, learning about how it works and why we, we, we do these things, what types of things we might do if we are people-pleasing. Um, so being informed, being educated, um, starting to become more aware of your behavior and how you interact with people, um, starting to notice moments where someone says, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go to dinner? And you go, oh, I don't, whatever. What do you, what do you want to do? You know, <laughs> it's just always like never having an opinion, never having a need, never having a desire, not being willing to voice it when you do. For me, it, it took a long time to realize that my, although I have needs, they were kind of buried. My need was always what anyone else around me wanted. You know, I needed the people around me to be happy. And the process of realizing when I'm people pleasing has been very much not just paying attention to my behavior and starting to kind of see like, Ooh, there's a tension here. This is a moment when I could have done something for me, you know, especially if it's bad, like, going home with a stranger at a bar just because they, they, you know, hit on you, you know, like that's, (laughs) that's some of the extreme that I've been to. That's, those are the moments when I'm like, Oh, something's wrong here. I want to fix this. I want to change this, but um, getting connected to my body, starting to really tune in and listen, like listen to my stomach gurgling or listen to my anxiety in my chest or feeling into the good feelings in my body. That has been a huge a huge angle for me to start actually realizing what my wants and needs are in the moment, because these are not just emotions, but they are physical sensations in the body. So those are, I guess that's awareness, education, and starting to tune into the body and just kind of paying attention, you know, and and listening for those moments when something, something doesn't feel right. You know, does this tie into uh, uh, self-worth or self-esteem in some way for you know for example i know in my own case i have a lot of issues appreciating my own value and um that tends to make me err on the side of let's do what you want or um you know not uh, many people would find it hilarious for me to say this but not asserting myself in situations where i should because i don't necessarily value my own emotional health or my just my own uh, health writ large enough to say what I want. I don't think they're the same problem, but I feel like maybe there's some crossover there. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I can't imagine there is someone who has people-pleasing tendencies on the planet who doesn't also struggle with self-worth. Um, and I think where those two really tie together and, and where they where they come from potentially for, for everyone or, or a lot of people is a lack of safety in being yourself. Um, there are probably a lot of ways that people can get here. For me, it was having a parent who was unpredictable, um, sometimes angry, sometimes judgmental, and also sometimes loving and maybe overly supportive and, not ever knowing when they were going to be one or the other made it feel like it was unsafe for me to just be natural, to just act natural. And, and I, I'm, I wasn't conscious of this, obviously, like this is from infancy on. 
where I develop those patterns. Um, and I think this is, there are similar situations for a lot of people pleasers, whether we have a misattuned environment in childhood or either a, a legitimately unsafe, scary environment, a legitimately abusive or, or even neglectful environment. We can, we can kind of come to this conclusion that it's not okay to just be us. We have to be constantly paying attention to what other people are doing so that we can be good enough for them. And intermingled with all of that can be a lot of shame. You know, I wasn't accepted for who I am. I wasn't made to feel safe when I showed up vulnerably, when I showed up authentically, when I showed up powerfully. Maybe I was shut down, I was judged, I was criticized. So I think people-pleasing and self-worth definitely go hand-in-hand quite often. And this sounds from what you just said, like we're also kind of bringing in uh, attachment disorders and the the ways in which our our childhood environments, you know, cause us to perceive all future relationships and what we can expect from them. Whether that's, you know, whether that's true of the actual relationship or not, it's the 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 lens through which we perceive these relationships. And so we may take actions that aren't actually necessary for the health of the relationship because we don't actually know how to see if a relationship is healthy or not. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and a lot of that can be very related to our attachment style and things like that. The word trauma comes up so much these days in talks about mental health. And when I was growing up, uh, really that word was pretty much only used for like emergency room triage visits like you know it was you if if you heard it on tv it was in a a show with an ambulance in it where uh you know someone had suffered a trauma in a car accident or something like that and then you know i didn't really have any experience of talking about mental health until i was in my 30s probably my mid 30s and i feel like nowadays people are uh you know the the current generations a couple below me are much more informed about how these things crop up in childhood and are much more comfortable with the language of mental health. And I still feel like I'm playing catch up in some ways. And so can we talk just about what trauma is and what trauma informed means? Yeah, that's um, a big and important question. Let's see if I can do as well as some of my peers and heroes at summarizing trauma. So I do appreciate trauma. that I'm asking you to s- summarize massive fields of study in a podcast <laughs> that's only going to last half an hour, and I just keep asking you one question after the other that forces you to, here, can you distill all of this language down into several sentences for me? And I apologize for that. No, it's actually, this is good. I sh- I'm supposed to be able to do this, and it's good practice. <laughs> um, these are great questions. Yeah, the the joke you were making earlier about about physical trauma, obviously, that's like head trauma and things like that. A a lot of people have known trauma um, specifically that results in post-traumatic stress disorder to be a single incident that, let's say, the body was unable to cope with in the moment. Um, That's a a car crash, that's um, sexual violence, um, a natural disaster an accident, a death even. And over the past, I don't know, multiple decades, but it's gotten louder and louder recently. Um, we're understanding that complex trauma is a thing, or some people call it chronic trauma, developmental trauma, which happens specifically in childhood. And that is ongoing experiences that are painful 
and hard for us to cope and often in which we are left alone to deal with our feelings. So situations in which we continually feel unsafe, we are pushed out of our our window of tolerance from a a nervous system perspective. We go into fight or flight or we go into shutdown, these these states of, of survival mode, basically. The complex trauma is multiple situations over and over again that put us in those states and we don't have help. We don't have witness and that sort of thing. And that um, is a bit different. So that creates complex PTSD if, if you have symptoms for over six months or for the rest of your life, because that's how things are. And it's very fun. Um, that is different from acute trauma or PTSD in the sense that the self is really is really shaken, can be really shaken, especially if it happens in childhood when we are developing ourselves, And that creates all kinds of stuff like, like insecure attachment styles and a low self-worth and things like people-pleasing and fawning and, and um, other behaviors like that. So that was maybe a long-winded way of describing what trauma is. <laughs> no, I think that's great and, and really helpful. And, you know, coming back to the idea of like, I think it's really great that we talk about mental health issues so much more now. I, I just have at least some worry that that conversation is, is becoming the only conversation that it's possible to have about how our lives are going and that there's more, there's kind of more available to us than that. And we do have some agency, some ability to, to deal with those, with those traumas and those issues that we're not just the prisoners of those, of those things, I guess. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I'm obsessed with trauma (laughs) Um, is because I, so here's the thing, like people may or may not have a history of trauma and if they do, it may or may not be impacting their lives so much that they are deeply struggling, deeply hurting, regretting a lot of behavior um, in pain. You know, I got to a point in my life where I did something so horrendous to someone I love that I, I needed to not just go to therapy, but start really learning and kind of obsessing on my own about how all this stuff works um, and why I did what I did and how I can change myself so that I don't do that again. Um, and that, for me, it's been really rewarding. I mean, it's intellectually stimulating. I think it can, it's clearly informing my, my new career. So all these things are good for me, but you know, there are also people who don't need to go that deep. Maybe they're not struggling that much, you know, and and I think the conversation around trauma should never, let me back up a minute. You were talking about, I don't want what happened to me in childhood to, to like control the rest of my life. Here's the unfortunate thing about that is that um, (laughs) the things that happened to us in childhood literally physically wire the body, the nervous system, the brain in certain ways. We can change those ways, but it can also be kind of like working on a car in a dark room with a blindfold, no tools and no idea how the fuck (laughs) car works. You know, like that's what quote unquote healing your trauma is, is like. Um, So it's kind of a crapshoot. Like, yes, of course we can change. We uh, neuroplasticity means we can change through repetition and through intense emotion um, and through effort and intention. So I don't think that anyone's trauma is necessarily, um, what's the word, like dooming them for the rest of their life. Um, 
And I think the conversation should absolutely always involve if we're going to talk about trauma, if we're going to acknowledge it, if I'm going to start thinking about it and working through it, it's, it's to heal. It's to find relief. It's to find support and resources and tools to help me through it. I think the conversation around trauma should never be like, well, we all have trauma. We're all fucked too bad. <laughs> you know, like that's very disempowering, you know? And I, and I agree. There are other, other ways to, to feel better or to do better in life. I mean, a lot of people lean on manifestation practices or, or mindset work, meditation, exercise, lifestyle changes. Um, and I, to, to me, all of those are part of trauma work if you have a history of trauma. You um, also do coaching work with folks, and I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, you don't have to give us a, a coaching session for free, but I am curious about the the kinds of people who come to you and the the kinds of techniques that you use when you work with clients. I currently work with people who have a history of relational trauma, possibly complex trauma, possibly childhood trauma. Um, they do tend to be people who struggle with patterns um, similar to people-pleasing, codependency, um, anxious or otherwise insecure attachment styles, feeling like they're not enough, feeling like they can't speak up for themselves, um, not prioritizing themselves while prioritizing other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, m- what I can work with people on is limited to what is sort of allowed in the coaching world. Obviously I'm not a therapist. I'm not allowed to go um, to certain places. So when I work with people, I think as a coach, primarily what I can do that is most helpful for people struggling with these things. And I, I also always hope that they have the resources to be in therapy at the same time. Um, what I can help with is first and foremost, listening and empathizing and giving them an ear of someone who really, really understands and um, this is not a dig about what you said a minute ago, but like, doesn't say like, well, gosh, have you just tried meditation? You know, like if you just do this, you'll feel better. Like I did, yeah. you know, and people with trauma get those responses all the time. And I think it's really important for, for people to be able to be heard and acknowledged in how hard it can be to be in agonizing emotional distress and wish, wish you didn't feel that way struggle with it anyway and whatever else they might be going through. The other thing that I help people with is, is just setting personal goals for themselves and holding them accountable gently and supportively through those goals between our sessions. So someone might say like, well, I really need to talk to my partner about X, Y, Z and I'm terrified. So we talk about why they're terrified. Um, if they think that they're not doing well enough, I, you know, I might say, how about you re- rephrase that in a way that gives yourself some credit for how hard you're working right now, despite everything you're going through, you know, and a lot of people have moments where they're like, oh, shit. Yeah, no one else was around to do that for me. So as a coach, that's kind of that's kind of what I do. The hit of dopamine I got from you just saying that right there is, I think, a sign of how much Aww. we need people in our lives who do that kind of thing. And I, I, I just will be clear that there are people in my life who do that kind of thing for me, for which I'm extremely grateful. But um, it, it really is a thing for just for someone to say, like, hey, you're really working hard at this. Give yourself some credit for the work that you're doing. Like, it's... 
we weren't even talking, you weren't even talking to me about anything I'm doing. And just the concept of that is enough to make you feel like, oh yeah, it's really good when someone does that for you. And so I can see how that could be so important in the lives of folks who maybe just don't ever hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think empathy, having a safe place to be witnessed and kind of working through self-trust and self-agency are are really, really crucial aspects of parts of what one might call healing trauma. Now, you also put so much of this, and it's so much of your own story, out into the world very publicly for, you know, for all of us to see. I mean, it was how I became interested in the work that you're doing and, you know, to whatever degree we know one another, which is, you know, pretty slightly, but it's, it's how I have the picture that I have of you. Will you talk about that, about that decision to, to be, you know, kind of as honest and forthcoming as you are online and to, you know, to, in many ways to use yourself as an example. And you've even done that in this conversation. That's such a good question. Um, I'm not sure if it was ever really a, a conscious decision or if it was kind of a, a combination of like being the live journal generation <laughs> and needing to be witnessed and needing to be seen and understood. Um, and also just realizing at some point in my life that um, I really admired and benefited from the people around me who were most vulnerable, whether it was self exposure and transparency in, in song lyrics or whether it was, you know, like Amanda Palmer in specific always stands out to me as someone who is just always so raw and real. Um, and her vulnerability and her public transparency has always um, <clears throat> really inspired me. And I think I just kind of naturally gravitated towards, hey, it feels good for me to like be completely myself. And every time I do this, someone comes to me and says, shit, that's something I couldn't say. And you said it for me. And it felt really important, you know, and it made me feel like I'm not alone. So I just kind of, you know, positive feedback, just kind of, kind of kept doing that. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it feels natural for me to be an open book, I guess. I also just have to say, I, I am always awed by the volume of work that you produce because like a lot of people are active on Instagram, but when I say you're active, I mean like your posts aren't just, Oh, you know, here's me talking about this issue for 15 seconds or whatever. There's like, there's lots of text and there are sources and there are examples. I mean, I feel like by following you, I'm actually, I'm not just seeing your life. I mean, I'm, I'm learning and being given just a, a large set of resources that seems like it must take a lot of time for you to create. Part of me is like, wow, thank you. That's so nice. And part of me is like, yes, I'm an internet addict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, did. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I talk too much and I'm on there all the fucking time. Yeah. Um, I meant it in the good you know, way. Yeah. <laughs> I heard. I heard for sure. Yeah. I mean, I kind of don't notice it. Um, well, sometimes it's clear that I've I've been on online too much, but the sharing feels oh it feels it feels natural, and I feel like um, I don't know I'm in a place in my life where I have felt some scarcity around social connection or around the types of companionships that I would like to have, and I don't know I think there's 
in theory, we all have parts. <laughs> there's there's a theory about all of us having parts, and I think there's a there's a six year old in me that is still constantly interacting with the world. Like, look at me, Dad. Tell me I'm good. Look what I did today. Look, I did this. How, do you like me? Like, <laughs> and I think that's a. It's interesting that that part of me might also be driving the, some of the good things that I'm doing in the world. Um, but without having, you know, I do I do kind of do that with my parents still sometimes. <laughs> But without having a, a, a group of people maybe in my life to do that with, to share with it, it, it makes me feel good to just kind of be, um, not train of thought, but like giving a play-by-play of my, <laughs> my interesting thoughts or something that I thought would be useful for someone or just my life or whatever, whether it's, you know, going to a punk show or, oh, I thought of something about attachment trauma, you know, <laughs> so... Now, before we bring this uh, to a close, I want to take a complete left turn because you're one of the very few people who's uh, been on this program who also has had experience uh, in a in van travel. And obviously, I live in a van full time, and you don't live in one full time, but you do have a cool van that you've traveled in. And I just I just wanted to ask you anything you wanted to say about your experience of of doing that. Oh my gosh. Um... Yeah, I would love to do it more often. I don't think I have any any information anyone would not already have. You know, some things are fun. Some things are a pain in the butt. Um, I've got this cute little uh, Ford Transit Connect named Priscilla. So it's like a mini, a mini buddy and got my turlet in there and my little bed. It's, you know, if I had to live in there, I could. If I could find myself a shower and, and stuff. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just so, it was valuable to me. Actually, for me, it was quite like anxious. It created a lot of anxiety in me. Um, I'm not used to being completely alone and I'm not used to doing a lot of stuff on my own. Um, so when I I took this uh, trip to New York from, from Seattle last summer, um, I was really anxious every night. And it was really interesting to slowly get more and more comfortable being alone and not knowing where I was going and not knowing if there's a bear or like, a, you know, creep outside of my van or whatever. It was valuable to be with myself and to just kind of have the simplicity of being on a trip. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the show um, Long Way Down with Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor. I'm familiar that it exists, but I've never seen it. It's so cute. Um, so they, they travel around the world on bikes and something Ewan said actually, and that was what I love about this trip is that all I have to do every day is just focus on where I'm getting to just get there. And it's so like outside of capitalism. It's so outside of our own personal dramas and that, that kind of, that stuck with me. And I, I really do look forward to making more, more trips in that little buddy. Well, that's a that's a beautiful uh, way to end this, except for me to ask you, uh, for folks who are interested in potentially working with you specifically, um, where can they find out more about your coaching services? You could go to livelouthercoaching.com or follow me on Instagram. The, hash, the hashtag, the um, whatever you call it, my handle is just livelouder with two ers at the end. <laughs> Because it's it's even louder than you think. It is. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My uh, my guest for the show has been Rowan Chamberlain. Uh, I highly recommend uh, following Rowan, and I will put those um, the links to the website and Instagram uh, because Rowan's always just sharing so much amazing information. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this, and I thank you for taking the time to do it. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Brief Chat. You can support the show at patreon.com slash vanarchism. You'll get early access to every episode, a monthly bonus show, plus travel essays and photos and videos from my Vanarchism project, which chronicles my van travels across the U.S. Thank you, and I'll talk to you again next week. (laughs) 